Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our first episode of 2023. It's great to be back. And what better way to get the year rolling than with today's guest, Rachel Taylor. Rachel has been serving as acting editor at Rappaport for the past few months. And as you all should know by now, she wears many hats in the industry, offering a valued and sought after perspective on many topics, including jewelry design, general market dynamics and trends. We discuss some of the interesting projects that Rachel is and has been involved in, reflect on the highlights of 2022, and project on possible market developments in the coming year. I always enjoy chatting with Rachel, and I have no doubt you will gain great insights from our discussion. As always, thank you for listening, and please enjoy my chat with Rachel Taylor. Hi, Rachel. It's so great to have you back on the podcast. Welcome. I trust that you're refreshed and uh, energized for the new year. How was your holiday break? Or is it too late to ask? We're already a week into the new year. I don't know. When is the official cutoff? That's all, that's always sort of the, the debate when you stop saying Happy New Year. <laughs> so there's always that Larry David clip that comes up around this time that after, I think, three days, you pass sell-by date for, for Happy New Year wishes. But it does, there's some element of guilt when you haven't seen somebody or you haven't spoken to somebody yet to just completely ignore it. So I will say Happy New Year to you, Abby. <laughs> Thank you. And, and since this is our first podcast of the year, we will wish the same for our listeners. But it's great to see you. Did you have a good break? Yeah, it was lovely. I managed to take some time off over the holidays, which was, which was really good. And not something I think you can usually do when you're a freelancer. There tends to always be last minute projects. But this year I've managed to plan a holiday take the time off. So lots of family activities. It's really great. Right. I think what, whatever position one is in, you really have to schedule time off, especially in our line of work. It actually tends to be fairly, um, I don't know if it's busy or semi-stressful to fill the news pages when there's no news going on. You've got to be really creative and um, think out of the box. Just, just getting hold of people, I think, is a real difficulty in our job because we can write lots of things, but often you rely on people's insights or comments, quotes. And I think when everyone, either from a business perspective, obviously in jewellery, this is a really busy time. So everyone's really focused on that or they're, you know, mentally away because it's family time and holiday time. So it makes it quite difficult if you want to sort of, because you have to create sort of real original stories because there's not that planned news cycle. But in order to do that, you need to speak to people and that can be quite, um, quite a challenge at this time of year. Right. And as someone who cares about the industry, you also don't want them to have time to talk to you because it's a sign that they're doing well, you know, in a, in a way, if there's an interest that we have in the industry doing well. I know that uh, Leia Merovich, our senior reporter at Rappaport, she spent some time speaking to or trying to speak to retailers and she had that experience about the holiday season, et cetera. And there were periods where she reached out and no one would talk to her because she was too busy. And then um, post-Christmas, she managed to speak to people and it was some interesting feedback. I don't know if you had a chance to read her story and I'd be interested to hear your take on the holiday season. But the piece that she wrote gave a mixed sort of report about the holiday season. But I think overall positive was my takeaway that there was this kind of last minute rush for jewelry amongst consumers and that gave retailers sort of the push over the line that they were maybe expecting. I think that's brilliant because there was a real sense of fear as we went into this holiday period, I found, or just general uncertainty. I think 
nobody saw it or nobody that I spoke to saw it as a sure thing. Whereas usually this is very much a reliable time of year in order to get sales in and often, you know, quite a big chunk of the annual sales in. But this year it felt like, I don't know if it's just, you know, we're maybe we don't take anything for granted anymore with all the changes we've sort of seen in the world over the past couple of years. But there was this sense where, you know, this solid, sure thing that everyone relies on in business, gears towards, works towards, it suddenly felt like it wasn't necessarily a shoe-in anymore. And I think that really spooked some people. So it's, it's brilliant to see that actually there has been some success stories and some good sales that have come out of it. Yeah, I think so. And it wasn't consistent. That was maybe the main takeaway for me that there were the season ebbed and flowed and there was sort of a quieter time during at the beginning of maybe of December from what I remember, according to her reporting. And then that last like week or two before Christmas gave that final push. But when I look back and think about 2022, there was always going to be that comparison, you know, against the previous year, 2021, which was a wonderful year for the industry. But, you know, on the whole, it seems that the industry didn't do too badly. You know, even if we tend to remember what's most recent, but if I think back at the first quarter, the second quarter, even as the geopolitics and the economic uncertainty was kind of filtering into the trade, sales continued to be quite strong. And particularly on the high end, I think we saw very good numbers amongst the jewelers who were reporting. And then there was the slowdown in the second half of the year and that the more uncertain sort of feeling within the trade. So. I think the industry overall can be pretty happy with 2022 and that's, you know, from an anecdotal point of view, at least. I think there's a sense also of looking at the long term. I think perhaps there is a feeling that when the pandemic set in, nobody knew what would happen. Was it going to be a disaster? And when it turned out to actually be quite a good period for the jewellery industry, I think there's a sentiment that perhaps even if this isn't the best festive trading period, do we take the long view where we've had quite a good run, it will come back again in the future. You know, this could just be a dip. And I thought that was interesting. We had a story in the in the final issue of 2022 in Rapport about sort of quotes from people in the industry looking towards the future. And Nilesha from um, Nice Diamonds, who's the president there, he very much said that you have to consider that we have had decent growth in 2022 and you kind of take that and you're cautiously optimistic about the future and also just looking that you've got to think it's that long term. It's the same with pricing, you know, and I imagine this is something you think about a lot, Abby, as well. But I've been speaking to people recently about Meta's pricing and, you know, it goes up and down and there's that kind of rush to make a snap sort of change or, you know, to panic. But in reality, if you're in this industry for the long term, as lots of people are, that's part of the job, you know, kind of riding this up and down, be that sort of retail sales or be that pricing. And it's just kind of learning to buffer that. Yeah. And there is a seasonal aspect to the trade as well. And this applies both to sales, but also to pricing, I think. And that's maybe where there's more uncertainty this year than a year ago, at the beginning of 2022, there was this momentum from the holiday season, from the full year, and that positive momentum inspired good sales in the first quarter within the trade. And I feel that we don't have that confidence at this point, at the beginning of this year, where the jewelers are replenishing inventory that they sold, and there's this sort of trickle-down effect to the rest of the trade, and that sort of inspires stronger pricing feel that there's a bit more caution and, and uncertainty whether that will play out to the same extent this year. And so the industry, I think, is having to adapt to those sort of having the expectation for the seasonal high and ups and downs, as they say. And it's just not clear 
to what extent those ups will be and if it will be strong enough to bring a momentum for further into the year. We shall see, as, as they say. But Rachel, looking back at 2022, were there any sort of standout moments or highlights for you within the trade or within the industry? And then I guess personally as well, um, that, uh, that may have uh, defined the year for you. You can take a professional or, or a personal angle at that answer. I suppose for me, one of the really kind of interesting themes of 2022 that ran through the industry, and it did it in lots of different ways, was technology. And I don't necessarily strictly mean, you know, pieces of tech, but just the way that perhaps the industry is integrated with technology. And I think it's been really interesting to see the stories coming out about the GIA with, you know, all the AI grading. But then also on the flip side of that, to look what people are doing with, say, Bulgari, um, with Rafik Andal doing the AI-generated art installation. You know, they're two completely different things, but it's a way that jewelers and the industry, and quite a traditional industry, you know, is embracing technology. And I think that's been, you know, we can look at, I suppose, lab-grown diamonds if we want to think about that and how that's morphed and changed. And also just, I think that's been a really fascinating thread that sort of run through whether it's huge changes or whether it's just kind of experimental, fun and playful things that you can bring tech and jewelry together and sort of have that hard luxury of jewelry or diamonds and how you kind of implement that with something, perhaps another sector that we wouldn't really associate with it, whether that is art, whether that is technology, whether that is AI. I just think those kind of meetings of worlds has been really interesting in the past year. And I think we'll probably see more of that next year, that kind of exploration of the metaverse and of these different kind of technologies. And I'm kind of excites me really to imagine where we can go. I feel like boundaries were really broken last year and not just technological ones, but maybe just, you know, taboos, like can a jewelry brand work with a digital artist? You know, is that too futuristic for essentially quite a traditional product? And I think that's quite exciting. So for me, that was definitely one of the highs, I think, sort of watching those little stories kind of pop up and play out. Yeah, I think the industry is often sort of accused of being too traditional and not embracing technology. But I think, you know, in my experience and observations over the last decade, at least, the industry has been quite inviting of technology. You know, if you look at the manufacturing sector, just the use of technology in manufacturing diamonds, in the cutting and polishing process, and the automation of that process has, has really been tech-driven. But I agree with you. I think there are some really interesting new applications that are coming into the industry and more from an artistic and creative angle. And the one thing that I'm looking forward to seeing, and I think will be a big trend in the next year, is the use of technology to tell stories, to show the provenance of a diamond, to tell the sustainability story of that company that's selling the diamond and the piece of jewelry. And I think that's where I'm also, in addition to that metaverse story, which I'm still not 100% sold on, but I'm trying. I agree with you that there's a lot of pent-up creativity that's, that technology is going to unleash in the near future. On a personal level, you're involved in so many different projects, Rappaport's been one, as you have you been um, very competently sitting in for Sonia while she's on maternity leave, and it's been great working with you in that period. Um, but what have been some of the highlights and interesting projects that you, you've been working on in the last year? Yeah, I was reflecting on this earlier. I think the Christmas period was quite busy for me, so I haven't done too much reflecting, but I've seen everyone else doing their kind of reflections on Instagram, and I thought, oh God, you know, maybe I should stop and think a little bit about what I've done. And when I did, yeah, it's been quite a busy year, but 
Sonia asking me to kind of cover for her on Rapport has been a huge honour and really exciting. It's been great to sort of be back involved with the running of the magazine again. So that's definitely been a huge high for me. Another one is I have been involved for the past few years with a competition based in the UK called the Goldsmiths Craft and Design Council. So I've been a judge in the competition, but also I've been a presenter of the awards that they've had for the past three years. Um, it's a guest role, so they ask different people to do it, and I've really loved that. But to keep me involved in it, they also have now asked me to be an ambassador for the awards, which was a real honour because um, it's very long. It's been going for over a hundred years. It's really impressive. They call it in the UK. We call it the Jewelry Oscars. So it's supposed to be kind of you know the best of the best. It's very you know each entry is judged by tens of really experienced craftspeople. So it's very much about kind of the craft of it. So yeah, I was really pleased to be asked, and that was really exciting. And I suppose really a big high for me professionally last year was I published two books. So I've obviously been a writer for a long time, but I've never actually published a book. So that was something brand new. So I suppose this time last year, I was sort of locked in the office writing one book on Tiffany Co and the other on Cartier. So yeah, so that's been a really fun adventure to do that. Right. I was kind of edging you into mentioning your those books, so maybe it's um, should have asked outright. But I think your ambassadorship is an interesting thing to watch, and very different um, sort of role that among our peers in the trade journalism sphere get to do. So I think that's a, that's an interesting thing that lies ahead for you. But um, from my point of view, as a little fanboy of Rachel Taylor, your publishing was really caught my eye because I think Cartier and Tiffany and Co are iconic brands. And, you know, the title of the series that you've published is The Story Behind the Style. And so, firstly, what was your, um, what sparked the idea and motivated you to explore these much written about um, brands and, um, and storied jewelry companies? I really don't want you to reduce your fanboy status at all when I say this, but it actually came about. It was, it was a publisher who came to me. They approached me, so it's a publisher called Bonnier. Um, they came to me and asked. They had already sort of in mind that they wanted to do these two books and they found me and they came and asked if I'd be interested to work on them. So I suppose in reality, I, it wasn't my idea to kind of come up with these books. I suppose the concept of them, in reality, they said, we want two books, one on Tiffany, one on Cartier. And then that was it. You know, they left the concept up to me on what I wanted to focus on. But the actual original idea of the book, sadly, wasn't me. I, it's it doesn't reduce my admiration. <laughs> but, but I think perhaps even more interesting that the publisher would have noticed these brands and seen that there's a story to tell in them. And so with that directive, you know, what was your approach? It sounds like they came to you with quite a broad blank piece of paper and said, you know, these look like interesting brands. What story can you tell for us? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting in itself when they approached me, because I think there's been a series of similar books that have been done on fashion houses. And so I think they'd seen the books, they're sort of miniature hardbacks, very much introduction to brands. These are done well. And I thought it was interesting that they want to move into jewellery. And, you know, they pick these two brands, which to me are kind of the obvious, you know, in terms of consumer, if you ask them to name luxury jewellery brands, you know, these two are the biggest. But their target audience, what I liked about the project when they approached me is that a lot of jewellery books are incredibly detailed, incredibly expensive, huge physically. And I think that targets a certain type of reader, that targets somebody who already knows about jewellery, who loves jewellery, who wants to delve deeper into it. 
what I found exciting about this project is that these books are really, while they're enjoyable for people who do know about jewellery, they're targeted at people who don't. So particularly with a younger consumer in mind as well. So the idea is you might have heard of the brand, you might have known it, but you know, you don't need to be a jewellery expert to pick up this book and to learn more about it. So for me, that's quite exciting because a lot of what I've focused on in my career is trying to make jewellery accessible or, you know, kind of extend the jewellery world to the outside world and get more people interested in it. So for me, that was a challenge to write these in a way that was engaging enough to do the brand's justice, but also as an introduction to people and to kind of make these stories really exciting, you know, because if somebody says, you know, write a story about a brand, it could be quite dull. When you're writing for consumers, you know, you want to kind of pick up these interesting stories. So for me, it was kind of finding that balance. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see it working, you know, they're in quite, um, so they sell them in lots of stores around the world, but including like Urban Outfitters, which is quite a young demographic. And actually my father was, he was over in New Zealand for this Christmas period and he found one in a tiny shop in New Zealand, you know, which is great. And he obviously got chatting to the girl behind the counter who's, you know, young girl working in the store. And obviously he was doing some bragging, um, but she said she'd read it. Somebody had gifted it to her for Christmas, which I thought was quite interesting as well. So they're very much kind of, you know, gifting books or, you know, buying for yourself, but it's an opportunity for me to kind of introduce people about jewelry in a kind of a sneaky way <laughs> you know just kind of extending that passion I have to others right well I confess I haven't had a chance to see a copy or read it so I'm interested if you're, you're telling the story of the development of the brand through the personalities and the design I would imagine and how, how the the design focus of these companies really sort of elevated their brand story over the years and that's what's really sort of led to their influence it, it's interesting because if, if you'd asked me about these brands before I started writing the book, I probably would have said they were quite boring. You know, they're not what interests me at all. And when I started researching, I really got into all the stories behind it. You know, if I used to think of a, a Cartier love bangle as the most generic piece of jewelry you could possibly own, didn't excite me. I was like, everyone's got one. It's so standard. They sell thousands of them. But then when I started researching the story and, you know, the story of the creation, the designer who made it. It's a love story. It came from a night of heartbreak. It's just, and I think that's really exciting when you go, you know, these big icons, I think, especially for us, we write about the business of jewelry. You see these icons as bestsellers. You see them almost in sales figures. You see them in success. It's easy to forget the romance that these are actually big icons. And in each book, there's a section, you know, listing each of the big iconic pieces that they have, but it tells you the story behind them. And I think it's easy to forget that, but when you start delving into it, you know, that design, even though it's some behemoth now, like every creative piece of jewelry, it was somebody's, you know, creative output. Somebody sat there and they imagined that and they dreamed that up. And I think we can forget that when we talk about mass production, but actually every bestseller is bestseller for a reason. It's because that story over tens of years, hundreds of years has connected with somebody in a deep way. So it's remembering these and bringing these back to life. Right. And then there's also the marketing element, because when I sort of started in the industry, these were two brands that really stood out for me. And they still do, I think, having very strong marketing and really sort of 
leading the way in pushing the boundaries of the industry and in telling a story of the brand. And I think it's been an interesting development to watch how Tiffany has changed under the new ownership over the last two years as they've sort of moved from being an independently owned iconic American company to French owned by LVMH. And it feels like the personality has changed and become a bit more edgy. So there's that marketing element that I think has, it's almost like the jewelry is, is there for the ride, but they're just sort of master t- storytellers. And I think that's true through history. I think that example of Tiffany is quite interesting. You saying now it feels more edgy, which I definitely think is true. And I think that's been exciting to watch. And before it might have felt quite generic. But I think when I started looking into the history of Tiffany really far back, it started out as quite an edgy brand. It was kind of originally because of Tiffany would have teamed up with uh, teamed up with PC Barnum, the character inspired the Great Showman, and they would do all these wild, outrageous windows or stunts to kind of get people to notice Tiffany, and that in itself was incredibly edgy at the time. They also were the first to bring real kind of big diamonds and impressive jewels to the United States, and they did that by taking advantage of going to Europe and taking advantage of these crumbling aristocracies in Europe, which, you know, they were kind of selling off the family jewels, literally. And they took advantage of that to get them at low prices, but they took them back to America. And it was, you know, nobody in the US had seen, you know, unless they traveled to Europe regularly, had seen those kind of pieces before in the States. So again, quite edgy, quite exciting. And it's interesting what changes and what is edgy that changes with time. And I think the issue that some big brands have is when they stagnate a little bit and there can be a decade or two where they haven't sort of moved on, they haven't found that new edge. And that's when brands can feel a bit safe and a bit boring. But it's interesting. And for Carty as well, you know, there's quite shocking, revolutionary moments all the way along. But because they've been around for so long, we forget that. And it takes something like an acquisition and an injection of money and new celebrities come along to make us feel like it's being edgy again. But in reality, you know, Tiffany's been edgy since the 1800s. It's just the story changes. Right. Well, I I do think that Tiffany lost its personality and sort of appeal for a period. I remember writing about it around, um, I think it was the early sort of 2010s that millennials weren't weren't relating to the brand. And I think that may have been true for the industry as a whole, that there was kind of this flat period where things were more generic and less interesting storytelling. And I'd be interested to hear from you if you think that's changing now. It's, and I think technology, as you mentioned, is have, is is playing a role there where, where the, the industry as a whole seems to be much more savvy in terms of pushing boundaries and we sort of point to the recovery from COVID as this sort of push, but I think the industry can also take a bit of credit that there has been, I think, a little burst of creativity industry-wide that has also been responsible for the growth that we've experienced in the last few years. Yeah, I think it's to do a lot with shifting the perception of who's buying jewellery. I think for a long time, there was a perception that marketing around jewellery should you know, be to a certain demographic only and that it should be a certain style. You know, if people want to buy fine jewellery, it's because they're going to a gala. That's the only reason, you know, they want to wear fine jewellery or they're getting married. I think an understanding that the way people wear jewellery is changing. And I think that had to come initially from the product. And I think we saw that at a different level. You know, we have this amazing, vibrant community of independent designers who feel like they could be more playful because that's their whole job is to innovate and to push and to create something new. And they started creating jewellery. You know, when we saw that rise of really 
fine minimalist diamond jewelry, tiny things that would be stacked and layered. Before, if you look at it, everything was very chunky and heavy and expensive. But finding that when we scaled it down, it opened up a whole new market to younger people and realizing that actually those kind of styles translated to their mothers or their grandmothers. And that was actually, you know, it, it was a cross-generational style. That's kind of a bit of a light bulb moment. And also you are speaking to these younger people in a certain way, but their mothers and their grandmothers are also shopping. So the way that you're speaking about your brand isn't putting off that maybe original core customer. And I think that confidence that we don't have to be so formal in the way we speak about jewelry. We don't have to, it doesn't all have to be about yachts and popping bottles of champagne and this perceived lifestyle. You know, it can be about just wearing a delicate diamond necklace with, you know, the classic white t-shirt pair of jeans. And that that is a viable customer that we can talk to. And that it's okay to speak like that to them in a casual way. It's not going to put off anyone else. And I think it's almost like jewelry becoming more real. You know, it's actually about people's real lives, how they actually feel about style as a whole, not this kind of selling jewelry as an investment or for special occasion. And I think, yeah, I think the industry does have to be given credit because they have moved with that. And it, perhaps there was a period where nobody was quite ready to move on. But I think now very much that's OK. And now we're at the point where everyone's feeling comfortable with that. We're now starting to push that even further. Like there's certain people who are looking to sort of agitate and innovate. And that's where the excitement is for me in terms of marketing as well. How far can they go and how far will the rest of the market follow? Well, it's interesting that you point to those independent designers as being the catalyst for that trend. And you, you have more connection to the design community than I do. So from my viewpoint, I noticed that among the bigger brands, amongst, you know, De Beers and the big marketers within the industry that we're marketing more sort of on the angle that it's more accessible, that it's everyday. And I like the story that came from the independent designer and then the big brands sort of took their cues from them rather than the other way around. And I hope that is the case. I think it's true. But then I think when you're doing a run of five pieces, it's less of a risk than doing a run of a thousand. You know, it's you can get it wrong and you can play around and you've got to stand out. But I often see, you know, representatives from huge brands coming to very small events that have these independent designers. And the reason they're coming and they're quite transparent about it is they're coming to see what's new. They're coming to see what's exciting. They want to see what everyone's doing. And whether that, as one might hope, would lead to them perhaps collaborating with one of those designers or perhaps doing some sort of showcase or whether they're just there to kind of pick up on trends and develop in their own way, which often happens as well. It's to imagine that those big brands and designers of those big brands aren't coming and looking at these small designers. That's not true. You know, they definitely are. I've seen it with my own eyes. I know they all keep tabs on it. So it's got to have an influence. Right. And, and I think we are seeing more collaboration between those two worlds. And I think that is encouraging. Rachel, before we wrap up for this episode, what, what are you looking out for in 2023? You know, looking ahead to the year, what is your expectation in any of those different worlds that you touch within the diamond and jewelry industry? Oh, there's so much. I'm always, as you know, I've always kind of got my eye on that design world. So I'm really excited to see what kind of new things are coming out of this. Um, but also that evolution, I think, of the big luxury brands and perhaps the way that they're, as we said before, kind of flexing and experimenting with different styles of marketing or perhaps slightly edgier products. I think that's going to be exciting. And then from a business point of view, 
I think it's just going to be interesting to see how the industry performs and how the kind of lessons that everyone's learned over the past couple of years come into play over the next year and also just how that, you know, intertwines with the consumer market and how everything's going to be. Yeah, it, it's a funny year. It doesn't feel, in most years, I could have given you a real solid answer. But as you say, it feels a little bit, feels quite loose at the start of this year. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen in the next year. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to analyze in terms of the B2B market and how that'll pan out, given the impact that the geopolitics had on supply and, and if that's really had its impact yet on the industry. I think China is going to be an interesting play for the industry as well. You know, this I think today the story broke that China's opening or loosened its quarantine measures for travelers, and that's just in time for the Chinese New Year. And so I think that's the pent-up demand in China that's ready to be released. There's so many unknowns about what's happening there at a retail level and at a general business level. So there's a lot to look forward to and a lot of interesting stories to write, I think, for us um, who are lucky enough to cover the industry. So we look forward to a, an action-packed year as always. So Rachel, thank you so much for your time and your contribution to the podcast. I've really enjoyed our discussion as always. Thank you for having me, Abby. And uh, look forward to more throughout the year. So thank you for joining us and thank you all our listeners for joining us on this episode of the podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rapport Diamond podcast. For more discussions, news and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us on rapport.com, follow Rapport Group on Instagram and follow Rapport on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes.